Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you. If you were here for VBS this week, the stage looks a little bit different this morning, but not completely different. Um, We had a crazy week here. One of the things that was super exciting about the week is we always make a challenge for for, for the kids to raise money for something. And so this year, we, our, our, our target was $3,000 to provide beds for an, a, a, a group of, um, uh, there's a, a couple in Thailand, their name is Aaron and C, and they run an orphanage, and the kids sleep on mats on the floor, and they don't have beds. I've been there, I've seen it, they're incredible kids, and they, Aaron and C, literally the first time I met Aaron, or C, she had three layers of socks on, and she was working tapioca fields. Um, because her boots had worn out, and so she just put multiple socks on. She was working all day, and they, they just worked to provide for these kids. So our kids worked really hard to beg you, I'm guessing, to bring money in, and they raised $4,000, which provided beds and bunk beds for the kids. And so really exciting what happened this week, and, uh, and it's incredible. One of the things I love about the North Canton Chapel is we don't just kind of like pick out of a hat a random mission partnership because you're supposed to do that stuff, but it's places we've been, we've seen, we know them, we touch them, like we're a part of it. Tim Talley's there, going to deliver the good news. He gets to bring the greatest news this week, and so God's doing incredible things here at North Canton, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. So this morning, if you will, turn with me to 1 Timothy, um, 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat ahead of you. It'll also be on the screen. Um, on the mast, on the ship that is shipwrecked. Okay, I remember it well. It was 2007. I was a dad for about six months at that point in time. And I remember thinking, what if she forgets who I am? I was leaving for a 10-day mission trip to Kosovo it was a bit of a different, difficult country, if you know anything geopolitically at that time. Kosovo was in this pretty massive war, had been, and there was all these things going on. And I was leaving for 10 days. I was going to be escorted by U.S. military most of the time I was there. And I was a young dad, and I was a little scared. And I remember, what if she forgets who I am? So I was sitting in my office, and I had this thought, and I thought, well, I know how to fix this. So I grabbed a camera. I took a picture of my face. I printed it out by, on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, and I laminated about 10 copies of my face, and I put them all over the house. Debbie, it's, this is true. This isn't a preacher story. It's real. And so, so I put them all over the house, and so my daughter kissed laminated eight and a half by 11 pictures of my face. We still have them, and I still send them with them to camp. And so... But I remember this real feeling as a young father, what if she forgets who I am, uh, right? And so I, I think as parents, we, we desperately want to make a difference in our children's lives. Um, we hope our kids remember us, that we don't mess them up too bad. Any parent just there, just like, I just hope I don't mess my kids up too bad, right? We, we, we have this, uh, in the end, we, we want, and I believe in this room, we want them to become devoted followers of Christ, to fulfill his purposes for their life, and we understand that there's a lot at stake, and we don't want to shipwreck this thing called parenting. Now, here are the ground rules a little bit for the sermon today. Nobody is flawless, um, right? Nobody is flawless, um, but yet we can't afford to shipwreck it, and so we can't just take that nobody 
has got this figured out as license not to work hard at this thing called parenting. Now, I want to qualify this because in the scripture, there's a lot of different kinds of parenting. Some of you may be like, well, I'm done. Success, failure, we're still figuring that out. You don't know. Maybe some of you are just starting. There's all kind of, maybe you've never had kids. But I think, I think in the scriptures, what we see is that, that sons and daughters happen. We kind of see this in multiple ways. And I think in the two big ways, we see spiritual sonship, right? Spiritual daughters and spiritual fathers and mothers, right? We see biological fathers and mothers. And so when we speak about this today, I want you to hear it maybe in the way, in in the context of what we're going to read. So Paul and Timothy, what we see between the relationship of these two men in Scripture is a, a spiritual fatherhood and spiritual sonship between the two. Paul will say this to Timothy, Timothy, my beloved son. And in every sort of intimacy as he writes that, there is this reality of his impact on his life. Now, there's a guy here, his name's James Talbert. I don't know if you know James. James is our church planner in Akron. And in Akron, James is there, and I had the privilege to do James' wedding. Now, I don't have a son. Um, I don't plan on having a son at this point in my life. And so I don't know exactly what it feels like to have a son get married. But what I do know is all the money that I had laying around in the house that I'd stashed away from my wife, I do hide money from you, honey, Uh, just little bits here and there, 20s, right? I took all the money I had, and when James got married, we were the last two in the back room, I handed him a big envelope of cash. And I said, man, I love you. I'm so proud of you so excited for what your life is, and I gave him all of my cash. And there's something about James and I that's just different. And there's a lot of guys I love and I know, but there's a sonship, there's a brotherhood, there's something deeply intimate between me and him. And so let's not discount spiritual sonship, right, spiritual parenting. So some of you, I want you to hear this, if you've never been a parent, this applies to you today because God wants you to be a parent. God wants us to have spiritual sons and daughters. And I believe, for me, as a father of four daughters, I desperately want the relationship I've had with many men, many women in my life who I've invested in, I want it to be even more profound in my own children, the spiritual discipleship that happens in parenting. And I believe it honors God much when we invest in others in this way. So these are some of the kind of ground rules, hopefully, that we'll see it well today. So what I want you to turn to your neighbor, I just want you to, like if it's your own life, if it's as a parent, I just want you to turn to your neighbor and repeat this to him today. Just tell him, somebody help me. Just turn to your neighbor and say, somebody help me, right? Right, let's just all come to this one place that we need some help. Some of you, that was hard to say, right? It was hard for you this morning. You had to ask for help, right? It's not easy always. But the reality in all of our lives is we all need investment. We all need parenting. We all need the oldest and the youngest. We need people to help guide us through this difficult thing called life. We need help from each other. So let's stand together and read 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. So let's stand in reverence and honor of reading God's word this morning. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 reads, If you put these things before the brothers you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, this is the Apostle Paul to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Father, would you give us insight into this text? Help us to understand more intently, Lord, the, not only the help we need from you as our father in heaven, but the help we need from one another that we might grow up perpetually, continually until we see you face to face as men and women, as sons and daughters. So Lord, help us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we look at the the text again, this is Paul to to Timothy, and this is kind of their their spiritual like sonship, fatherhood to one another. Now, parenting, just to say this, parenting isn't simply the, the fact that I have children, but parenting is the responsibility that I have accepted in a lifelong endeavor of action. So the first thing that we see in the passage today in regards to this relationship and what Paul is going to then kind of give downward to Timothy is to give boundaries. So there's this, there's to give boundaries. So there's gently, he's going to remind people of what matters most. Gently remind people of what matters most. This is his encouragement to Timothy. So he says, if you put these things before the brothers. Now, notice he doesn't say this like in a harsh way. He says, you need to put this in front of them. It's kind of like serving it up on a platter. This isn't something harsh. It's not something that you need to shove down their throats. If you, if you place this before them, and even in Paul's writing to Timothy, he's saying this as a gently reminder to him that this is something that you graciously kindly do. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, and he's referring backwards, there was this, this and we're going to get into it in a minute, but there was this kind of heretical approach dealing with meat and marriage. Just remember those two words, that meat and marriage, there was this issue that they were kind of causing them saying spiritual people do this and people do that and you must do this. And there was these kind of things outside of the word of God. So, so he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So there's this affirmation, like, if you do this, this is good. There's a boundary here. There's good and bad. There's things that you ought to do. There's things that you ought not do. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So again, this isn't an edict, right? This is this gentle request. And so he says, being trained in the words of truth, right? That, that there is truth, the words of the faith, meaning the words of, of the truth. Like this is, there, there is truth thing, there's true things and there are false things in this world. And I need, and I've told you these, stay in these, Timothy, and of the good doctrine that you have followed, Now, notice that word there at the end of it. It says followed. It doesn't just say, hey, this good doctrine that you adhere to, that you profess. He says this good doctrine that you have followed. Now, just say this. I believe this is a defining characteristic that that is just that subtle thing that distinguishes people in this life. It's the good doctrine isn't just something that I have a mental assent to, but something that I hold deeply in my heart my soul, my life, that defines my practice of how I live, 
and how I engage with others. So truths like this, I believe in God the Father. I believe that God the Father, he made all things. He created them. Not only did he create all things, he created me. And in creating me, I have no reason to tell the creator anything about me because my life is simply a miracle and a gift and I should live in gratitude toward the Father. I believe in his only son, Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life, bore the wrath of God that was due me, the death and the judgment and the hell that I deserved, Jesus took on his shoulders for me. And because he took that for me, right, he was the substitution, right, the atonement that I could not bring to my own life, he brought for me. And because he has done this for me, what, what can I do? What, what could I not do? How can my life in some way respond to this extravagant grace that Jesus has brought? I was once, right, not a servant of my Savior, and now with all my life, help me to serve him, to no longer live in rebellion. I believe that God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell me and to live in me. And at one point in my life, I was sent into my own wants, into my own doings, and I was navigated by Ryan Johnston alone. But now I'm indwelled with the living Holy Spirit of God who moves and shapes and directs and forms my life. The good doctrine that not only do we have a mental ascent that God is the Father, that Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit ascent, but we've grabbed onto it, and it defines our life. And I believe what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, man, I'm so proud of you, because I know you do it. You've grabbed onto the faith. You've grabbed onto the good doctrine. And brother, I affirm you, son, I affirm you in how you live your life. And he says, these things, man, you need to tell them to the brothers. You need to encourage them in this because this is good of who you are and how you live. But not only that, right? He says, consistently stay committed to these essentials, to faith and good doctrine, not just in the classroom, but in your life. A few years ago, a few years ago, when I was a, when I was a kid, now some of you have heard the story of, of and went through this with me. Um, <clears throat> about two and a half years ago, my brother Mark died of cancer, but he had another bout with cancer when he was 15 years old. I was seven years old. I remember sort of those days, but one thing I distinctively remember is my dad. We used to work on the farm. I grew up on a hog farm. We'd work with my dad, and we'd we do all kinds of stuff. And my dad was a very gentle man. He was a very kind man to us. But we kind of don't appreciate those things, do we? Be- sometimes because it's just what we grew up with. And we don't know. Even if our dad was an angry man, we, we don't really know because it's just kind of what was. <clears throat> Brother Mark went through two bone marrow transplants. And as he went through these two transplants, my parents had to leave home for long periods of time, about two hours away. And so my grandparents would come stay with us, and my uncle and others would come and work on the farm. We had about 200 hogs, and we had to do all the work. And so me and my brothers and my uncles and grandpa, we would take care of things. Remember my uncle coming. And my uncle is an angry and a harsh man. 
I remember how I felt moving from my gentle and kind father to a man who would say, you idiot, don't you know how to do that better than that? Get it together. And if anything, anger would spurn up and you'd feel his barbs and everything was tense when he was around to where the second transplant, my brother Craig said, hey dad, can we just take care of the farm and nobody else come out here to take care of it with us? And we did. Grateful for my brothers because I didn't have the hard jobs. I just filled water. So I think they thought I was just going to screw things up. And how do you screw up water in a trough? And so, see, I had a gentle father and I had an angry uncle. See, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, we give boundaries, and boundaries aren't known intuitively, but spoken, given when we give dignity to the people around us, our sons and daughters, and sons and daughters, we give dignity to mothers and fathers. See, when we hold fast to the faith and the doctrine, it's not just shapes, it doesn't just shape how we think, it shapes how we act. Now, I am not a perfect dad, and I have raised my voice in anger to my children. And I hope every time that I have, I have knelt down beside their bed, which I've done many times, and said, I am so sorry for speaking to you like that. I I should not talk to you like that. Will you forgive daddy? And I don't know if I'm a very good dad, but I know those moments, that's not bad. And I know that showing my kids in some way that this guy's flawed is good for them. But all of us in this room, we have a choice that we have to make. Will we give boundaries to our children? And those boundaries start with us. The second charge in the text is to train in godliness. To train in godliness. Train in what to run from. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, this kind of goes into all kinds of things in the context of their time. Second, First Timothy 1, uh, 4, 1 through 5, he's going to talk about marriage and meats. And so he's going to say, some of you saying that you have to abstain from marriage. And others are going to come along saying, kind of heaping up all these requirements upon your life. They're going to tell you you can and you can't do this. The word of God doesn't explicitly say any of these things. Keep away from the babble that isn't true to God's word. Keep away from the babble that is really just men trying to control you, that they might come underneath their own power and glory. So he's saying, train what to run from. And so he's going to tell them, tell Timothy, hey, there's some things, there's some things that that you need to tell them to get away from. So when you're driving down a road, right, there's different signs. There's signs that say, right, Cleveland, 40 miles And there are signs that say, bridge out, right? They're different signs. And if you pay attention to, if you don't pay attention to what not to do, there is imminent danger ahead. And so the responsibility of spiritual parenting is to to tell them to what to run from. Second is train in what to value most. And I believe this is what you run for. Train them not only to what to run from, but train them in what to run for. 
train them in what to value most. And what Paul is going to say in this text is personal holiness is more important than anything else. And if you miss this one, if you don't value this, there's danger ahead. Rather, train yourself for godliness. At the end of verse 7, set yourself apart to Christ for Christ in life. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the one to come. Meaning that there is an eternal thing that we are living for, not for the moment, not for the momentary pleasures, but today. So what it says, for while bodily training is of some value, meaning that exercising restraint in life, it actually is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is a thing to have self-control. It's a good thing to exercise and to take care of yourself. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You can exercise all you want to, and you can be as healthy as you want to be, but at the end, eternity is coming, and living for that is far more important than anything else. Anybody believe that today? What's hard is, do we believe that? Do Do we believe that? And I think this is where Paul is kind of pushing in fairly hard of saying, the temporary is so tempting, isn't it? The temporary and living for the moment, for the pleasures of the moment, for the applause, so tempting, but yet it is fading and will fade. And so he says at the end of this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And the saying I believe, what he's speaking to is train yourself for godliness. So life moves. Life moves so fast. Everything feels so imminent that we often, we often lack in seeing the bigger picture around us. Anybody, anybody just raise your hand. Do you ever feel like life moves fairly fast, right? There's, there's a, there are these uh, old poets um, by the name of Simon and Garfunkel, and they said it like this. Slow down, you're moving too fast, need to make the moment last, just kicking, okay, and that's enough. And so... Now, we don't learn a lot from Simon and Garfunkel, but there is a reality in life that we need to slow down and remember to value what is most important. Now, I have an 11-year-old, not quite 11-year-old, will be 10, 9, 4, and 1-year-old. And life seems to move fairly fast. And in these fast moments, we can tend to neglect the most essential things. And I need to take my shoes off or something as I say this this morning because we need to slow down to value that which needs valued most so that we might display that to our kids because what will happen is 18 will come fast. I did college ministry for seven years and I saw this happen with a lot of families 18 came really fast. There weren't very many vacations. There weren't very many quiet times because life just moved so fast for families. The connection wasn't there and separation just came really, really quick and easily as adulthood came because we just moved too fast and we valued the things that didn't matter most. Running from some things is critical and valuing God And being trained in godliness matters 
Might we say it? Might we accept it in our lives? Third is impart hope. Impart hope. He says, for to this end we toil and strive. To this end we toil and strive. And so it's this this only like adequate words of the Apostle Paul here. He's kind of saying, get after it. Timothy, you need to toil and strive. There's things in life that you are going to toil and strive after that don't matter, but godliness and holiness and the kingdom of God, to this end we toil and strive. To this end we work hard. To this end we put everything we have because we have our hope set on the living God. So this end, he has this this ending of this kind of chunk where he's saying, set your hope Give your hope away. Keep on setting it. Toil and strive to this end. Why? Because Jesus, who is the Savior of all people, the desired will of God, he desires for every man, woman, and child to come to faith. But those who believe and turn in repentance, for them, they will experience the goodness and the grace and the love and the peace of the Heavenly Father. To this end, we toil and strive because it matters. I don't know about you, but typically what we toil and strive in is where we have our hopes set. And so when we set our hopes toward wrong targets, we tend to toil and strive toward that very end. So an example would be if the target is for my daughter, my son, to go to college, to become this, that, or the other, what will we toil and strive toward? Education, correct? Anybody, right? Is education good? Yes, it's very good. I, yeah, it's really important. If we want them to get a college scholarship, what, in, in a sport, what will we do? We will toil and strive to that end. If we want them to simply respect us, Right? What kind of language will they hear from us? You need to respect me. You need to do this. You need to, right? We will, we will toil and strive to that end. And we could list this out in a hundred different ways. And even in spiritual, like even in a, not just in a parenting role, but in a spiritual realm of parenting, what we value most, we will set our hope there and we will work to that end. Question in our lives, and I believe this text forces us to ask ourselves, is what are we toiling and striving for? What is it? And whatever that thing is we're toiling and striving for is where our hope is truly set. Meaning that if this happens, then life will live happily ever after. There's only one place where we can set our hope where life will actually be happily ever after. And that is in the person and the full work of Jesus Christ himself. To this end, we toil and strive. Now, as we think about the takeaways this morning of, of what does it look like to not shipwreck? How do, how do we survive a shipwreck in our homes and our family and discipleship and in all of these areas? I, I believe the overarching one that, that kind of glosses over a lot of error is this one. It's encouragement. Simply encouragement. One of the things that I would attest, and I don't speak well of my father, right, because he deserves it, and today would be a good day to do that. One of the things that I have never, never doubted, and never, I've never experienced this, and I know I'm rare, but I've never not had someone who believed in me. Never. My father 
has believed in me every moment of every day of my life. He's always thought that I could achieve whatever I set my mind to, and he has always been my biggest fan. Now, I know that everyone can't say that, but I can say that, and I believe that is a very honorable attribute of my father. And Deb, would you say that's true of my dad, right? Probably annoyingly sometimes for you, right? My dad has believed in me my whole life. And I believe the power of encouragement unlocks more than we know. Right? In scripture, it talks about this all the time. In scripture, there's, there's over there, some, it depends on how we look at it, but there, there's up to a hundred one another's in the New Testament. Up to a hundred one another's. Encourage one another, love one another, come alongside one another, bear one another's burdens, one another, one another, one another. And they all revolve around encouragement. You can go after this. And I believe that those that encourage us, it unlocks the power in relationships. Who do you want to be around in life? People that disbelieve in you or people that believe in you? And I believe that what God is calling us to do is not to look at others to the left or the right in this, but to say, myself, who am I going to be? I'm going to be someone that obeys the teachings of Jesus, and I'm going to want another people to death. I'm going to love one another. I'm going to care for one another. I am going to be a person that embodies encouragement because I have been encouraged by my Savior, and how can I not? The power of encouragement unlocks more than we know. But here are four things for us as takeaways today. The first, and these are, I believe, are the commitments to, to spiritual parenting, commitments to parenting, that, that if, we, if we embrace these, and they're big picture, if we embrace these, they make all the difference. First is a commitment to say, I will model the way. I will model the way. Remember the first parenting class that Deb and I went to, we had to fill out this piece of paper. And so we fill out the paper and they said, what are the attributes you would like your children to have? And so we fill out this sheet. We had to list out 10 attributes, honest, integrity, all these things. And then we flip the page over and the question in big, bold letters was, do you possess these attributes? And it was like, oh man, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought, right? This, this, I will model the way I have to develop what I want in them in me. If I don't have it, they won't either, right? If I don't have it, they won't either. The work of modeling the way, developing my own character, right, I will duplicate. And this is, this is what I believe is so challenging about this call to make disciples in Scripture, because what Paul is saying is, I want you to invest in others, and they're going to look like you, Right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's sort of dangerous, isn't it? All of my hairs, all my flaws could be reproduced, duplicated in someone else. Modeling the way, saying that I am going to be the real deal, unmasked, genuine, in all places, in all spaces, I am going to model the way of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The second I will enable them to act. Now, it's not an enable with an I. This is an enable with an E. Now, there's plenty of the enables with the I, meaning that I'm just going to give you whatever you want and you'll never learn how to act, right? Like, I just, this is that, that kind of catering. Enable is actually giving them all of the things and all of the tools that they need to survive in life. So I will enable them to act, and that means to teach and to train them, to take the everyday moments of life and intentional training and use it as an opportunity to train our children up, to train those we disciple up in the faith. This is a, 
This isn't about taking away from them, but this is about giving to them. And I believe enabling is actually taking away who they might be, and enable with an E is actually giving them what they need to make it. So give them what they need. And so sometimes our children need failure to succeed. And we need to learn from our failure. And sometimes they need success, right? Sometimes they need, sometimes they need bumps and bruises, and sometimes they need hugs and kisses. But in all these things that we uniquely walk in the spirit of God and with God and we give away that which is needed, we will enable them to act that we actually take intention in that which we're growing up, that which we're investing in. And we don't do this like we just cross our fingers. There's a bit of this, right? And hope it all works out. Now, I say that I, I, I don't, I have not raised my children, Right? The, the great experiment of the Johnston household has not been yet told of what this will become. But what I do hope is that we are enabling them to act not just in life, but in, the, in, in life and in their faith. A third is I will inspire a worthy vision. I will inspire a worthy vision in them. A vision bigger than them. Worthy of God. Now, just if I could poke here for a minute, I believe, I believe we're in this really critical, dangerous spot culturally. And I believe that we're in this critical and dangerous spot because we tend to not give our children worthy visions because their lives have been all about them and themselves is not worthy. Their life is not worthy of being the center of everything. Kinsley Johnston, is not the center of the world. And I love to remind her of that. It is great pleasure that I find in reminding my children that they are not the center of the world. Yesterday I said, man, the girls haven't done anything today. Maybe we should do something tonight. And Deb goes, who cares, right? This isn't about them. And kids can have non-busy, boring days. We had plenty of them growing up. They can too. And I, I believe that's me simply feeling cultural pressure that we've got to do something fun for our kids every day of their life. They don't need it. And it's irresponsible of us to think that life is all that. Anybody with me? So, so I will inspire a worthy vision, right? A vision that there's something bigger than us, worthy of God, that we set, our, set a standard of things that matter most and make no mistake, they are watching us. Those you disciple are watching you and what you say matters and what you live matters can be two very, very, very different things. Anybody with me on that? Very different things. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I inspiring a worthy vision to give their life to? Because last I checked, this world is not about me and you, but a holy God who sent his only son into this world. And the worthiest vision of all is a life sold out for him, for his name, for his glory, to the very ends of the earth. Living, live personally, modeling something worth living for bigger. And then fourth, last, is a commitment saying, I will collaborate with them. Now, that's not a word that we typically talk about with parenting, but I think it's fairly important. And I think it's important because in this is, at the end of the day, <clears throat> I have been entrusted with kids. So <clears throat> my first child was a foster son. His name was Marcus, six months before Kinsley was born. And we had him only for six months, but there was a trust given, and he was my son. 
right? He sat in my office with me. I turned the lights off so he wouldn't sleep. I worked in the glow of the computer, right? I held him at night for six months. And when he was gone, it was like I'd lost an arm, right? I remember waking up in the middle of the night and thought I heard him crying and waking in. There was no baby in the room. But I'd been given a trust for a short window of Marcus. And hopefully, we honored God as best we could with that window that we'd been given. But then the day, right, he left and God had planned for my, my own children, I've been entrusted with a season of their life, not their whole life, a season of their life where I will shape them and mold them. And at the age of 13, which we're getting close, it's kind of going to be over for the most part of like instilling and giving and then it becomes guiding and coaching and then it becomes maybe hopefully friendship at some day. And the question is, am I collaborating with them in the seasons of their life as they're shifting and changing to come alongside of them and to help them make best decisions for their life in the days and years to come? Or am I a parent? Am I a parent that simply gives them all the answers and is treating a 13, 14, 15-year-old like a three, four, five-year-old? They may act the same, but they're very different. That was a joke, but nobody laughed, right? They may be... (laughs) The question is, are we teaching them to get off on their own? And this is the same in a spiritual relationship and discipleship. The question is, isn't me just telling someone what to do, but are we collaborating in such a way that learning how to think, learning how to act, learning how to operate on my own is the end goal, right? Clancy says it all the time. I'm not raising kids, I'm raising adults, right? I'm, I'm raising adults. And the job is, right, like, <clears throat> right now, we're working on our one-year-old. Like, the, I want less responsibility with you, right? And so please go to the bathroom so I don't have to do this for you anymore. <laughs> we're going to get out of diapers at the Johnston house. It's going to be good. All right. The wallet for me. So, so we walk through seasons, changes of seasons as they change with our children. And this is a process of love, believing in, caring for, and being their biggest fan. <clears throat> Say it again said it when we started. Somebody help me. None of us can go at this alone. And that's one of the things I love about the North Canton Chapel is I don't think that a lot of us have to go at it alone here. I think there's a lot of people at this church that are really authentic in the struggle and the challenge of being a parent, of being a spiritual parent. I think there's a lot of people here that have gone down that road and will speak to their failures and successes. None of us have it all together. None of us have gotten it all right. But one of the things I believe is that we want to desperately bad. And we want to learn, we want to grow, we need each other to get to that end. And so how do we do that together? Well, I believe that we have to set boundaries and we have to pursue godliness and we have to instill appropriate hope that we model, we enable, we inspire, we collaborate together to this greater end. See, I believe that my wife, my children, This is to us dads in the room, fathers, men. I believe that that people are looking at us and asking the simple question, will you lead me? And it's a daunting responsibility, isn't it? The responsibility of leadership. And what we can do is we can push it to the side, say, ah, let their mother deal with that. We can push it to the side and say, hey, we'll let the church deal with that. We can push it to the side and let someone else or we can hear the call and we can say, I have no idea fully and completely how to do this, but I'm going to. 
and I need help along the way, and so I need some other guys, I need some other dudes to help me walk through this together, but I want to answer the call to be a leader in my life. Spiritual leadership, spiritual parenting, spiritual community, these are shipwrecks that we can't afford to have. But this morning, no matter where you find yourself, our God is a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And today, wherever you find yourself as a dad or as a mom, God can reset things. God can restart things. God can cleanse things. He can renew things. He can restore things. And it happens simply by us responding to him in repentance and faith. We do that for salvation, but we also do it in life. And so maybe this morning we just say, God, we've not honored you well with this. Forgive us. And then we just say these words, and God does some miracles in these words when we just say, God, help me. And this is the thing that I know is true from his word and from my own life. When we cry out for help, he helps. When we call on him with all of our heart, he hears us and he answers us. And I'd encourage you today to call out to God. And maybe you're doing great. And maybe you just say, God, help me to keep doing great. Whatever it is, might we respond. And so I'm going to pray. And after we pray, we're going to listen to a song. And you can remain seated as we listen to it. And this song, I believe this morning, is a response. A response to God's word and a response of, of desire for us to be people that lead well with what we've been given in life. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to respond well to your word and to your ways. Lord, that we would be men and women or to do well in life with all that you've entrusted to us, that we would be men and women of the faith, that we'd follow the good doctrine that we wouldn't be carried away by silly myths, that we wouldn't set our hope on things unworthy of our hope being set upon, that we would inspire, that we would enable, that we would model, that we would work alongside in collaboration all those that you entrust to us. So Lord, help us to respond well. If those who have never responded to your gospel and repentance and faith, Lord, I pray today, Jesus, that anyone in the room that doesn't believe would respond in repentance of their sin against you, their rebellion against you, and turn in faith, recognizing that you, Jesus, shed your blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sin and that you rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, sin, and the grave so that we might have life. Lord, for those who have believed, Lord, set our mind on eternal things, reset our priorities today, help us to respond well, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.